Thank you, Nate and Emily, uh, for that. Uh, good morning, everyone. Morning, right? Yeah, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Noah Chung, and I am the Near South Church Planting Pastor. Wait. Near South Church Planting Associate Pastor, uh, and I'm over South Loop and Bridgeport. Excited to be here with all of you. Uh, you know, one of the, the goals of, kind of the reasons of that title is that one day, God willing, uh, that we would hopefully plant a church out of South Loop and Bridgeport through maybe even some of you as we look towards the other neighborhoods and being intentional in the city and for the city um, to make Jesus known uh, throughout the city. And so just thankful to, to be here. So if you guys have been with us for a few weeks, we've been going through an Advent series. Uh, we've stopped Romans for a little bit, and we are in Matthew chapter 1. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, it's the first page of the New Testament. Uh, and if you are there, you notice that in Matthew chapter 1, there's a bunch of names, over 50 plus names, presenting us Jesus' genealogy. You know, last week, Kenson reminded us when genealogies were written in this time period, it usually represented something to be proud of, very much like what we would have a resume. Um, and so when we have a resume, we usually put our best foot forwards, right? But Matthew here, he he shows us the great figures of Jesus' genealogy, but he also shows us the, the mess, some of, some of the brokenness also in Jesus' genealogy. And as you can see the outline behind me, it kind of paints the picture. The, 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 there's three kind of sections in the genealogy. The first section is that Jesus came from a really broken and messed up family. Yes, you have patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but you also have a lot of broken stories of disobedience, uh, of adultery, and even murder. And then in verse 7 through 11, we saw last week that Jesus also came from a broken line of kings. Yes, there were the good kings like David or Solomon or Hezekiah, but there are also some flat-out evil kings, so bad that we wouldn't even invite them over for our home for Christmas dinner. However, even though there were the evil and good kings, even the good kings like David and Solomon had major shortfallings as well. So this week, we're finally in the last chunk of the genealogy, and we're going to be entering into the period of Israel's history where there aren't many high points in this portion, the deportation and the exile of Israel. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we'll be in Matthew chapter 1, verse 11, and it reads, And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shilotil, and Shilotil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Elizar, and Elizar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let me pray. God, we want to thank you for this time uh, and the time in this word. I do pray, God, as you um, reveal uh, a lesson, a word for us during this season of Advent, God, may you speak to our hearts. May you cast all distractions aside and allow our hearts to be good soil. And may you even speak through me. May it not be my words or, or my wisdom, God, but may it truly be what you have for us to hear today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, how many of you all love Christmas music? Raise your, raise your hands. Raise your hands. Okay, there's some of you who are honest here. Okay, be proud, okay? 
How many of you don't like Christmas music? Oh, no one. Oh, maybe, maybe one or two? It's okay. It's okay. We still love you, okay? Um, I personally love Christmas music, okay? Of course, as a pastor, I love the ones that point to Jesus, right? The O Holy Night, O Come All Ye Faithful, Joy to the World. But, you know, if I were honest, and if this is a safe space here, I also love the ones that aren't about Jesus. <laughs> like Last Christmas, or White Christmas, or the Christmas song, you know, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, right? Especially by Brian McKnight. Come on now, come on. That gets you right in that Christmas mood, okay? I love that song. But you know, another popular song that we all know is I'll Be Home for Christmas. And though many of you think that Michael Buble wrote it, uh, I'll Be Home for Christmas was not written by him. It was written in 1943, before he was actually born probably, uh, by Kim Gannon and Walter Kent and sung by, as you see behind me, Bing Crosby. And though many of us kind of identify with the song, like with movies, the people like desperately trying to go back home, it's actually not from that perspective. It was actually written from the point of view of an American soldier during World War II stationed overseas. And the song was like a letter he was writing to his family, asking his family to prepare the holiday, ask for snow, the mistletoe, and presents by the tree. But then at the end of the song, it kind of ends on a somber tone. It says, I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams. And when the original song came out, you know, a lot of music executives thought that, that this song was way too depressing for Christmas. There's no way that it's going to do well. But in actuality, when it was released, it was incredibly encouraging to the many soldiers who are overseas. It actually boosted their morale. And it still is one of the most popular songs in Christmas to this day. Why? Because even though many of us probably, most of us probably, can't identify with being overseas during war, all of us can identify with this deep desire, this deep longing of wanting to be home. For some of us, home is a physical place or a location where there's familiar settings where you can unwind, take off your shoes, and relax. For others, home is not so much a place, but it's a people. But it's about the people you know, family and friends that you love, where you can laugh together, where you can eat together. And maybe even for others, home is a place where no hardship or sufferings exist, a place of warmth, of protection, of care, of love and peace. In each one of our hearts, we all have a deep longing to be home. And so when we get to the third section of Matthew's genealogy here of Jesus, we are entering into a period of destruction, of, of deportation, and of exile. And if I could use one word to describe this period for Israel, it would be this one word, longing. Longing, a deep longing for home. So to kind of help us understand why this is in Jesus' genealogy and kind of walk us through what, 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 what does it mean for us today, I have three questions to kind of walk through this for us. The first question is, what caused this deep longing? The second is, what is the result of this deep longing? And third, what is the answer to this deep longing? So number one, let's jump right in. What caused this deep longing? If we go back to our text in verse 11, let me just read it again. It says, And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon, 
Now, if you remember last week, Josiah was a good king. He was only eight years old when he tore down idols and broke down false altars. He was, he was pretty boss, okay? But then his grandson, uh, Jeconiah, was the complete opposite. He was a terrible king. He did not obey a single one of God's laws, and eventually he was the one that eventually led Israel to exile. But notice also that amidst those two names, there is an event. And out of all the 50-plus names in the genealogy, this is the first and actually the only one besides the birth that's an event in this genealogy, the deportation to Babylon. So what is Matthew talking about here? Well, we have to go back to the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And if you, if you know your Bible history, you know where I'm going here. But let me just recap what was going on in this deportation. Starting from verse 15, you'll see behind me, Second uh, Chronicles 36, it says, The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary, and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and by the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. Verse 19. They sent fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. Now, as you read this, it's pretty sad. It's depressing, honestly, to read this. But when when we see this, 2 Chronicles is not just summarizing one act of disobedience, not even just one sinful generation. These verses are summarizing over 300 years of Israel's disobedience and rejection of God and his ways. 300 years. So what kind of sins were they committing amidst these 300 years? Let me just give you a short list of what they were doing. In Isaiah 58, God calls Israel out for their false fasting and how they oppress and enslave their workers, ignore the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner. In Amos 5, God calls out their injustice of abusing power, their power over the poor, their corruption, and their love of evil. And then in Jeremiah 32, God calls them out for worshiping false gods and setting up altars for them, that they would disobey all of God's commands and laws, even to the point of offering their own sons and daughters as child sacrifices to these gods. And if you read through 1st, 2nd Kings and the prophets, the list is vast. It goes on and on and on. So what caused God to send Israel to exile and to destruction? What caused Israel's deep sense of longing for home? It was their sin. It was their disobedience to God and his ways. It was their own fault. They had, they can only blame themselves. Because church, sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. But you know, if we were to step back and we were honest with our own lives, I I think this makes us and our culture a little uncomfortable. Because we don't like to talk about how sin, especially our sin or my sin, has negative consequences. Of course, the big sins like murder or, or rape, yeah, those sins have major consequences. But that's more the exception than the rule, right? Wrong. Every sin has a consequence that can hurt and can even destroy individuals, relationships, families, or entire systems. 
For example, say you yelled in anger to your coworker. That coworker goes home in a sour mood and then takes the frustration out by yelling at his children. They get hurt. Next day at school, they're frustrated, they're angry. They start a fight with another kid. Then that kid's hurt. Then their parents are mad. Then it keeps going on and on and on. Just imagine what one angry outburst or one word of gossip or one person of immense greed can affect so many others. And it can build this cycle and snowballing effect of sin that has negative consequences on so many others. You know, I bet in a, in a room this size, especially with it being the holidays, I bet many of our families are still carrying the consequences of sin from prior generations or even from current generations that are still hurting you today. It might be the reason why you hate the holiday season. It might be why you don't see certain family members in the holiday season. You know, I, I personally come from a, a family of alcoholic fathers. And the consequences for me and my brother were incredibly painful. Holidays were hard, and amidst that brokenness, there was a longing, a deep longing in our hearts for something more, a longing for home to actually be home. And the reason, church, that we long for a home is because that sin is in us, sin is near us, and it is all around us. That's why for Israel, 300 years of being in sin, it resulted in their destruction, their deportation, and then their exile into Babylon for 70 whole years. 70 whole years. But then as we look, what's next? What's next for Israel as they sit in this suffering and in this hardship? It leads me to my second question. What is the result of this deep longing? What is the result here? What happens next? Well, just imagine if you're an Israelite right now. Imagine what would be going through your mind. What would you be feeling in this moment, seeing just your home being annihilated, that even if you wanted to go home, there's no home to go back to. What would you be feeling? Well, if we look in Lamentations, written by Jeremiah, who was a prophet during this time, who, who experienced and saw all the mess of the exile, he writes Lamentations. Let me just read a short portion of this for us today. In Lamentations chapter 3, starting from verse 4, he laments, He has made my skin and my flesh grow old. He has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Jumping to verse 16. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. The entire five chapters of Lamentations is this deep cry of sorrow and lament. And he, in Jeremiah, is reflecting upon the exile and the deportation of Israel. So for any Jew who would read Matthew's genealogy here, when they see these words, the deportation of Israel, or deportation of Babylon, they would immediately bring up the hardships of the past, the, the difficulty, the, the suffering that their forefathers had experienced. For some of us, when we reflect upon events like 9-11 or in a horrific school shooting, or maybe a memory of a lost, lost uh, family member or a friend or a, even a child, our hearts grieve. We reflect upon that and we just remember the difficulty that we went through, that our families went through. 
it brings us to tears. The result of the deep longing is one that every human experiences. It results in this gut-wrenching, knee-bending, tearful sorrow and pain. If you've been through it in the past, whether you're in it right now or you may even go through it in the future, everyone experiences this sometime. And I know that some of you right now, you might be in a season where you're in a valley, where you're in a difficult place, where you feel tired, you feel broken, you feel frustrated, maybe you even feel hopeless. Can I, can I just say that if that's you, can you please let us as a church know? Let Rafe, let Nate, let one of the deacons know because we want to walk alongside you. We want to pray with you. And if necessary, we want to weep with you. Church, sin has wreaked havoc on all of our lives, and we want to be a community that bears your burdens with you. You know, but if we, if we go back to the genealogy, it's interesting that deportation only actually lasts for 70 years, and it only includes technically two names. If you look in verse 12, it includes Jeconiah and Shaliatil. That's it. So then what are all these other names doing here? What, are, what kind of history is Israel going through here? Well, we have to then go back to the Old Testament and look at Ezra chapter 1, um, verse 2 to 3. Let me just read this real quick. It says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Persia takes over Babylon. Um, it says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And we look in verse 13 of our text, the name Zerubbabel, a very difficult name to say. In verse 13, he is actually the new governor that goes back to Jerusalem and helps rebuild Jerusalem and the city there. So then, right now, we're saying, okay, Jerusalem has to go back home. It's exciting, right? No more exile, no more suffering, right? Good news. Well, we'll see that it's actually not so good news. Uh, a, a Bible historian wrote this, and let me just quote him, and it's really good. It says that the actual return was a crushing disappointment. The returning exiles found Judah, a wilderness, and the holy city, a wasteland. Corruption was everywhere, even among the priesthood. The descendants of those who had escaped captivity were hostile to the newcomers, fearing that their Babylonian brethren might try to recover their formal family properties. So when Israel, they finally get to go back home, and they settle it was not home. The longing, the, for, a longing of home that they had hoped for was just not there. Because leaders like Zerubbabel, like Ezra, like Nehemiah, as we see later, as we see in the records here, they put their hands together. They tried to rebuild their city. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild their homes. They, they cast out the barbarians, and they rebuild the walls. So you, you're thinking, this is good news. They've returned back to their home. But something was missing. There was no longer a palace like there used to be with King David or King Solomon. Instead, Israel would be under a foreign rule for, for a very, very long time. It was Babylon, it was Persia, then it was the Greeks, then it was the Romans. They would forever be under someone's oppression. But then the temple, they rebuilt the temple. But the temple would be just a shell of what it used to be. When Solomon built it, it was, it was full of its glory and majesty. And God's presence literally dwelt in that temple this new temple they built, God was not there. And if you look at the rest of these 10 names in our verses here, from uh, Abihu to Jacob, 
there is actually nothing else about them in Scripture. Their names are here from maybe Jewish tradition and history, but for us in Scripture, they are nowhere else to be seen. For a period of over 400 years, there was no prophet, there was no king, no inspiration worthy enough to be added to the story of Scripture. No matter how hard the Jews tried, no matter how hard they tried to rebuild their city, there was still something missing. God was silent. You know, um, I, I kind of identify with this. Uh, growing up, uh, I was one of the few, if not really the only, um, Asian Americans in my high school, or elementary through high school. Uh, I lived in the western suburbs of St. Louis. Um, and some of you may even have experienced yourselves being a minority in a very majority school or context is, is pretty difficult. And for me, it was very lonely. To this day, you know, kids can be really mean. Uh, I still remember the things that I was kind of asked or called, and I remember kids yelling at me, hey, hey, Jackie Chan, Bruce Lee, do some karate. Or questions like, you know, how is your English so good? Or, or why are your eyes so small? Or can you speak Asian? Which is not a, a language, or, by the way. But then the best question that I got was, are you from North Korea or from South Korea? And I had to explain with just so much patience in my heart and the spirit holding me back was that North Korea, it's a, it's a commun, it still is a communist country. And I, no one can really leave from there unless you were a spy. Do you think I'm a spy? Uh, which I would get, you know, very uh, weird looks and uh, yeah, it was just a difficult kind of explanation too. Um, but no matter when I was in school, no matter how hard I tried, no matter how hard I tried to get the good grades or to look like them or talk like them or act like them or even be better at sports than them, they would know that I was still different. And I felt different. And sociologists, they would, they would later term this uh, thing that they would call being a perpetual foreigner in your land. But then in fifth grade, I had some good news. I had, uh, we were going to go back to Korea for just a, a summer to spend time with family, my, my family. And as we were going back there, I was like, yes, finally I get to go home. I get to be with my people, to go back to the motherland. But as soon as we landed in Seoul, in Korea, and I met my grandmother and uncle, and I tried to speak with them, the first words out of my mouth were English. They weren't Korean. And so I had to learn my broken Korean to, to communicate with them in Korean. And though I loved being in Korea, I loved the food, I loved having family all around me and walking the streets and having people actually look like me, I, when I spoke Korean, when I tried to speak it at least, to others, to my family members, I was constantly reminded that I don't belong here either. I don't belong here. I realized that I didn't fit in in Korea just as much as I didn't fit in in America. At one period, I just, at that period, I just felt like the, being home was a distant dream that I would never be able to attain. I felt hopeless, I felt scared, I felt angry, I felt kind of like the Israelites. You know, because at one point, exiled Israel was longing to go home. They wanted to go home. But as soon as they got home, they realized that home wasn't really what they were hoping for. Even though they tried to build it up, it was not the same. And I think for all of us, I think we're experiencing either one of these two camps. Some of us right now, we're experiencing what it means to be in exile. 
Maybe you look different than people around you. Maybe you have a different cultural background. Maybe even your faith isolates you from people who are surrounding you, and you feel like you're in exile. Or maybe some of you, you are in a season of despair and of difficulty. You are suffering and in hardship, and you are longing to be home. You're longing to be someplace where there's safety or there's rest or there's peace. For you, you know exactly what the Israelites are going through and what it means to long for home. But then for others of you, others of you, you may feel like you're trying to build your perfect home. Just like when the Israelites went back to Jerusalem and they're trying to rebuild their home, some of you believe that you can build your perfect home here right now. Some of you, you long for safety, so you make sure your home is the safest and most secure home. Some of you, you long for comfort and convenience, so you create the most comfortable, the most user-friendly, the most beautiful homes to live in. Some of you, you long to be near family and friends, so we move wherever we can so that we can be near those family and friends. Some of you, you long to be around the best, so we move away from difficult and damaged neighborhoods and peoples by building more distance and more walls. Now, these things of of being in a home, they're not wrong things, but the great lie of America is that you can build your home, your perfect home, here, right now. Just like when I tried to put all my hope in going back to Korea, or when the Israelites put all their hope in going back to Jerusalem, you cannot build a perfect home here. That is a myth. That is a lie that we've been told over and over again, even especially during this Christmas season. There will always be something missing. Wood rots, metal rusts, comforts fade, family and friends, they pass away, and danger and uncertainty are always knocking at your door, no matter where you live and where your home is. If you, if you had the perfect family, the f- perfect life, the perfect neighborhood, the perfect schools, no matter what, you always feel like something is missing. You feel like something is missing. You're longing for something more. Church, my question to you, what are you truly longing for? What are you truly longing for? Is it a home? Is it something here, something far away? Because church, do you know what another word for longing is? It's the word advent. Advent means longing as well. Unlike the popular view of of Christmas, Advent isn't about longing for gifts or these fuzzy feelings or even some holiday and family time. Advent is the longing of hope amidst our greatest suffering and pain and sorrow. Advent is the longing of hope amidst our sorrow and pain, church. Advent is longing for a perfect Savior. You know, the good news is that we're at the end of our genealogy. And the good news is that in verse 16, someone is born. We read, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So it leads me to my last question. What is the answer to this deep longing? church, his name, and you know his name, his name is Jesus. Because in the silence of 400 years, one quiet birth by a humble family becomes the answer to the 
deepest longing in each one of our human hearts for generations prior and after. Because though home isn't here yet, church, home has come to us in the form of Jesus Christ. You know, what's amazing about the birth of Jesus is that Jesus doesn't come just sidestepping the pain and the sorrow and the difficulty of the human experience. Jesus incarnates himself. He enters into the most difficult period of Israel as a nation. He enters into their sorrow, to the silence of just generations and generations where God did not speak. But instead of speaking, Jesus came to be. And when he comes to be, he, he came and he suffered the ultimate consequences of our sin. He suffered the brokennesses that we put on this earth. He suffered the pain, and he suffered the most difficult part, which is death on the cross. He put it all on the cross for our sake, so that in three days, church, in three days, he could defeat sin and death and invite us to his newly resurrected life. He invites us, because he is the resurrected king, to come home. As king, he says, come home to me. For those of you in this room, longing for rest, he says, come to me, all who are weary and weary. My yoke is easy and light, and I will give you true rest. For those of us who are are longing for healing when you are broken, Jesus says, come, bring your pains, your scars. Let my hands, my tears, my wounds heal your body and your soul. For those longing to be loved, Jesus says, look at the scars on my hands. Look what I have done for you. You are my beautiful bride. Come to me. For those longing from freedom of sin and addiction, he says, bring them to me. Let me break those chains that are weighing you down and truly set you free. For those longing to be part of a family, Jesus says, come, my child. You have been adopted into the most beautiful, diverse family the world has ever seen. And for those longing for a place where earth cannot provide something beyond earth, Jesus reminds us in Revelation that he will wipe away every tear. He will wipe away death and it shall be no more. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the formal things have passed. He's saying, I am making all things new. I am bringing heaven to earth. In my Father's house, there are many rooms and I am preparing one for you. And he reminds us, I am coming soon. Church, I am coming soon. Church, home is found only in Jesus Christ, now and forevermore. So, church, what can we be doing practically throughout the week as we have family over through the holidays, as we hopefully can get some rest? There's just one simple thing, though difficult thing, that we can do. Look to Jesus. Church, look to Jesus. For those of you who are in exile or in despair or difficulty right now, look to him. Look to his promises. Let his presence just soak your heart. Let his words just remind you of who he is. Let songs of praise fill your entire bones. And then also, surround yourselves with Christ followers who then will also remind you to look to Jesus. Some of our responsibilities is to encourage those who are suffering in this, to help to turn our eyes to Jesus and who he is. But then for others of you who may not feel like you're in exile, you may feel like life is going well, home is comfortable, I like where I am right now, can I just challenge you? You need to also look to Jesus as well. 
because we have to look at what he did when he came on earth. He didn't just come comfortably, nicely, in a well-lit hotel room. He came in a manger. He, he came to live and die for us. And we as a church, when we look to him, we also follow his example. We look to Jeremiah 29 that reminds us to seek the welfare, the shalom of the city. We see the great commission in Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations for his name's sake. And then we look to share the love of Jesus when we see his example, that we can share his love to others because now if we believe in Jesus, we now have his very presence in our hearts. Jesus has made his home in us so that we could be light to a dark world, so that we could be salt to a rotten place where sin has so many negative consequences that continue day in and day out. Church, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Let me just close with this story. You know, um, in the, a famous book series called The Chronicles of Narnia, some of you may have read it, written by C.S. Lewis, um, one of the books is titled The Horse and His Boy. It's a, a, probably one of the more um, not as popular books because there hasn't been a movie made yet about it, um, but may, maybe one day. Um, but, you know, in this story, it's, it's a really um, interesting story. In this story, it's, a, it's, it's about a boy named Shasta, a Narnian boy. He was raised up uh, as a son of a fisherman, but later on he realizes that his father is going to sell him away to slavery. So he runs away with his horse, hence the name, the horse that is boy. And on his journey, they are forced by lions to meet up with another runaway girl named um, Arvis. And through a series of events throughout the story, they eventually learn that the kingdom of Narnia, the, the, the kind of the, the land and the country they were in, was going to be attacked. So they race against time, trying to warn the king of this future attack. But through another series of events, they get separated. Uh, Aravis gets hurt, and Shasta has to travel alone to get to the king. But trying to get there in the dark, I think it's a forest, I'm not, too, I'm not quite sure yet, uh, the dark place, he gets lost, and he can't get out. And in this point of the story, it's one of the, the deepest, kind of the, the darkest places that he has. Because as he's in this forest, he's lost as tears kind of roll down his cheeks, he remembers just how hard his life has been. And, but as he re reflects and as he gets angry and frustrated, all of a sudden, he realizes that he's not alone, that there's something or someone next to him. But feeling hopeless and not being able to see anything, he just, he just says, please go away. Like, don't hurt me. I'm, my life is already miserable anyways. But with a, a warm and, and gentle breath, this thing speaks to him. And he says, tell me your sorrows. The thing says, tell me your sorrows. And so Shasta, kind of confused and taken aback, he, he, he's a little reassured too. And so he just starts just unloading all the things that he's going through. He tells them about how he hasn't known his real father or mother and that he was about to be sold into slavery by a fisherman, that he was chased by lions and forced to swim for his life, that he was in constant danger in, in a city called Tashban and that he had to sleep in, in the night of the tombs and he was chased by beasts again and that how they almost got to their goal in the desert where they were journeying, but yet somehow these lions attacked them and he, they were taken off course. And how still, to this time, he hasn't had much to eat. Then after just kind of unloading all to this mysterious creature, the, the creature speaks to him again and says, I was the lion that, was, that caused you to go off course. 
And then the lion speaks. It says, and I quote from C.S. Lewis, I was the lion who forced you to join with Arvis. I was the cat who, quoted you, who comforted you among the horses of the dead, houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay a child near death so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. So Shasta, just really confused, asked the lion, who are you? Who are you? And the lion responds, myself, myself. Which I think personally, C.S. Lewis is referring back to when God says, I am. Because later on, we realize that this, this figure, this creature is a lion. And it's the Aslan character, which in Chronicles of Narnia, he is usually identified as the savior or the Messiah figure in this, uh, in this story. Aslan, Aslan was always with Shasta, even though Shasta didn't know that Aslan was with him, especially in the most difficult and roughest moments of his life. Why? Because at the end of the story, we find that Shasta, he wasn't just an ordinary boy. Shasta was the long-lost son of the king of Narnia, the Narnia, the kingdom of the entire land. Church, I honestly believe that Shasta's story is all of our stories. In the ups and downs of our lives, in the valleys, in the mountaintops, in difficult and suffering and sorrow, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, meaning God with us, he is just like Aslan. He has always been with us. And it's the same promise he gives in Matthew 28 at the end of the Great Commission, that I will always be with you. Because like Shasta, if we believe that Jesus is Lord, that we believe he's the Savior of our lives, we are also called sons and daughters, heirs, of the, of, of the King of kings, of the Lord of lords, of the one who is seated on the throne just like Shasta in this story. Church, he is coming soon. Home is coming soon. Let me pray. God, we want to just look to you today. Jesus, we want to look to you as our Savior, as our King, and as our Lord because, God, we know that as Christmas comes and as many of the distractions and the glimmer and glitter can come, God, we forget what it means to look to you. And so, God, I pray, no matter where we're at right now, whether we are in the deepest of valleys right now and we're suffering and we feel like we're in exile, or whether we feel like life is good, God, I pray for all of us that we may look to you, that we may look to you and be reminded that you are our Lord, that you are our Savior, that you are Emmanuel, God with us. And in that, God, we thank you. We glorify you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Would you please stand?